This is Triple H 100.1 FM. Good afternoon to you and welcome to Rotary Matters. My name is Ian Stewart and it's great to be with you again. Look, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that today's media are bursting with very, very sad images of people fleeing Ukraine. Refugees, cold, desperate, hungry and homeless are forced to travel by whatever means possible to neighbouring countries in Europe. It really must be hideous, frightening and very dangerous to be a refugee. But you know, this isn't the first time we've had a refugee crisis and it probably won't be the last. So today on Rotary Matters, we'll be meeting Erica Henley. She's an extraordinary, a very kind and thoughtful Rotarian from Toronto in New South Wales. And Erica has devoted her life to helping refugees in their time of need. Erica first became involved five years ago in assisting refugees who had fled the war-torn Middle East and made their way to Greece. She took with her a team of four nurses, a music teacher, an admin person with teacher aid and children's ministry skills, and an Australian-Italian living in Rome who had volunteered full-time with refugees. They made a big impact living close to Athens and working every day in the refugee camps. And from this experience, Erica refocused her efforts to another war-torn country, this time to Kurdistan in northern Iraq. In just four years, Erica raised over $135,000 to finance her team's work. This included the purchase of two 40-foot containers to ship $2 million worth of medical equipment and humanitarian aid to the Directorate of Health in Dukok, Kurdistan. In our program today, we're going to be hearing how she sourced this equipment in Australia, as well as some journals, medical journals, which are donated to the Mosul Medical College Library. Erica's ongoing fund efforts have built an emergency field hospital near Mosul. They've bought 5,000 women's health kits, provided warm clothing for children to survive the extreme cold of winter in Kurdistan, and started a garden of hope in a refugee camp enabling them to grow their own fruit and vegetables. These are just a few of the many examples of the humanitarian work of Operation Hope and we'll be finding out more shortly, so please stay tuned. But look, just in case you're joining us for the first time, let me give you a quick elevator pitch about Rotary underpinning the whole global movement is the core concept of putting service above self. Now, it's stories about these extraordinary, generous and heartwarming acts of service that forms the basis of this weekly program, uh, Rotary Matters. So what happens is that each week we bring an interview to explain and provide insight into a specific Rotary cause or project. Uh, it could be an international story about an Australian building a school in Nepal or running an orphanage in Kenya. Locally, we might be focusing on running a food bank in suburban Sydney, removing graffiti beginning a community garden or providing learning resources for schools or helping women who are suffering domestic abuse. Around the world there are 1.2 million Rotarians in 36,000 Rotary clubs so it's pretty big. Here in Australia we've got 26,000 Rotarians and 1,100 clubs and it's in the clubs where the beating heart of Rotary resides. Ordinary and extraordinary men and women of all ages wanting to make a difference. Uh, on um, youth programs, sporting interna international aid projects, and tackling health challenges like polio. Um, it's said that Rotarians dig wells from which they'll never drink, restore eyesight for those they'll never see, vaccinate children they'll never meet, educate children they'll never know, 
feed hungry children regardless of colour, race or politics. So in Rotary Matters we bring you interviews to delve into these challenges and we meet some inspirational Rotarians and the beneficiaries of their work. So today, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to be learning about the work of Operation Hope Australia, led by Erica Henley, who's doing some inspiring humanitarian work to ease the plight of refugees in northern Iraq. Australia. And I um, had the pleasure of talking with Erica by Zoom. Erica Henley, it's great to have you with us today on Rotary Matters, a most extraordinary story um, around the organisation Operation Hope. I'd love you to talk to our listeners about the, the whole project, but it all began, did it not, back in 2016, you went to Greece. What prompted you to go to Greece, Erica? Well, at that stage, I lived in Brisbane with my husband and two sons. Uh, we lived there for 12 years. And during that time, I volunteered in projects to assist refugees who were arriving in Australia, predominantly from Iran and Iraq. Uh, in 2011, I established two playgroups and I invited refugee families to come along to allow them to assimilate into a safe place in the community. Um, this grew into providing secondhand household goods and furniture, as well as baby items as they moved from community detention into rental properties in Brisbane. So Erica, was, how, did they, how did you find them? How did they find you? Well, um, through our church. Others in our church were running weekly English conversation classes and organising monthly community meals and legal clinics, which continue to this day. In 2016, I simply heard that a nurse in Brisbane was going to Greece to volunteer in the refugee camps as a medical volunteer. I had a phone conversation with her, although I did not know her. She had posted on some local refugee advocacy groups and she invited me to join her as a humanitarian volunteer. So I rather cheekily in turn asked a girlfriend who was a nurse. She then asked her daughter who was a nurse and I asked my son who was a nurse and in all seven of us travelled to Greece. Because most of us were already involved in volunteer work and advocacy for refugees, this was simply an extension of our work. Okay, so a bunch of you went go over to Greece um, with um, a range of qualifications, nursing and um, teaching, and certainly a strong focus on helping mankind. Erica, um, tell us, where did the refugees come from and, and what assistance were you able to provide? Well, the refugees had come overland um, or by boat from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Turkey and Syria. This was the first time that some of us had met and assisted the Yazidi people. They're a religious minority from Iraq. And little did we know that the following year we would be travelling to Kurdistan in northern Iraq to volunteer in the numerous refugee camps the place of refuge the Yazidi people sought after the genocide by ISIS in August 2014. Anyway, back to Greece, uh, we were able to offer two distinct types of aid. Medical volunteers worked in medical clinics set up in refugees camps. They were usually run by international non-government organisations. The medical clinics were very rudimentary and had to refer patients to the nearest hospitals 
for ear, nose, throat and eye consultations. The medical cases in the camps, in the medical centres, included patients with bronchitis, skin infections, malnutrition, kidney damage and stones due to lack of drinking water, pre- and postnatal care and birth of babies and also long-term conditions like diabetes. So we took medical supplies, we purchased medications and we used our rented van to transfer some of the patients to clinics and hospitals. Two of our nurses then travelled to Petra and worked in a medical clinic set up in an abandoned sanatorium. This camp was solely for Yazidi refugees who had been brought to this camp from other camps as they were being bullied and threatened by refugees of different ethnic backgrounds. My son, Michael, recalls tri triaging an older woman who came to the clinic each day. She had been forced by ISIS to watch the beheading of her husband and sons in Iraq. Tragically, the medical centre in the refugee camp could not offer her the long-term psychological and therapeutic help she needed. Those of us who were humanitarian volunteers worked in the little schools in the camps. We predominantly led classes for primary age children, but then some classes for high school students and even adults. We taught English and maths and coordinated art and craft activities and outdoor games. We took 100 soccer balls donated by a young boy in Brisbane and we subsequently spent hilarious time blowing up the balls and getting them into several of the refugee camps. We bought a photocopier and school resources for one of the schools we worked in and at the other school we enlisted the help of an American aid group and paid them to purchase wood and build desks and chairs for the schoolrooms. All of the schools were just simple structures with a roof and usually Hessian walls. One was located in an old brick structure. We uh, used to have fun going out and shopping in bulk, buying things like thongs, undies, washing powder, soap, shampoo and colanders to distribute amongst the families in the camps. We also spent an enormous amount of time sorting through huge amounts of donated clothing, predominantly from the US, which was then distributed to the refugees through a little shop. I think we binned more clothing donations than we put into the shop. It was a real eye-opener and very, very disappointing. We were invited by one of the camp managers to set up a women's quiet area. Almost every woman in the camps had undergone some level of trauma and tragedy. So we set aside a corner in our huge warehouse where the women could come to have quiet time, to paint their nails, style their hair, drink copious amounts of sugary tea, uh, talk with each other and listen to music. We We're talking with Erica Henley. Erica is from Operation Hope Australia. She's talking to us about time that she spent in, in, in the refugee camps of Greece assisting refugees who'd come over from um, Afghanistan predominantly. Um, Erica's talking about the aid that they were able to provide. Um, Erica, how did you manage with the language 
when you were dealing with people from other countries like this? Mm. It's amazing how many of the refugees know English. And English is one of the most popular subjects in the schools. They all want to learn English. So it, it was... Um, it wasn't difficult uh, and there were also many translators around who would sit in on a conversation or be part of the class uh, to help in those cases where people didn't know English. Um, and, and for many, English, of course, was their second language. Now, you indicated that you collaborated with one, with one or two other aid agencies, um, yes. but was anybody oversighting or overseeing the entire refugee assistance program or was it up to you to say well look there's a need over here um, we'll just deal with this without reference to others how, how did this sort of chain of command if there was a chain of command how did that work um, all the camps were fenced and um, no one can just walk into a camp the residents could leave the camps if they wanted to but most refugee camps were uh, located out in the countryside, quite a long distance from any little villages. So the community really um, stayed in that refugee centre. Today, we're focusing on the inspiring work of Operation Hope Australia, which for the past few years has changed the lives of refugees originally in Greece and more recently in Kurdistan in northern Iraq. Now, this all began when Erica Henley took a team of volunteers to Greece and we find out a little bit more about um, uh, where and how they lived while working in the refugee camps. So where did, where did you and your colleagues from Australia actually live while this work was being undertaken? We, we had to um, volunteer with non-government organisations to be allowed to go into the camps. So we assisted with the projects that those non-government organisations were already involved in. Um, some of them ran the schools where we volunteered um, and others were running uh, other programs, um, sewing groups, uh, English conversation classes. Some had set up small um, businesses where refugees um, would sew leather products, predominantly bags, um, that were then um, taken to market, um, usually in the countries where the non-government organisations had come from. So um, there's one case uh, where an English NGO uh, was taking the bags that were made in Kurdistan and selling in England, or I even had one sent to me in Australia to purchase. Um, but the government in Greece and Kurdistan are in control of the camps. And in Greece, um, there was uh, meals provided, um, not, not good quality meals. And um, so a lot of the uh, refugees were very hungry because the food was either not cooked well or not suitable for their diet. Um, so there would often be um, a market gardener who would come in with his ute and he'd, he'd be able to sell fresh fruit and vegetables to supplement the diets. Um, but yes, the tent, the refugee camps were not 
nice places. We did not stay in those camps. We um, stayed in motel accommodation or just out from Athens we had an Airbnb house where we'd base ourselves. Um, and part of our work is that we do not uh, get paid in any way. We uh, pay for our own airfares, our own living costs. Um, we raise donations um, and 100% of those donations go to the projects that we are supporting. So let's talk about the, the fundraising, Erica. Um, this is Rotary Matters. Rotary clubs, uh, were they supportive of your aid work? Yes, um, we have found Rotary is a wonderful community to help build connections and friendships, pull resources and work together um, for those in need here in our local community nationally and internationally. Even before Kim, my husband, and I became Rotarians, our local Toronto Rotary Club was supporting Operation Hope Australia by contributing financially to our projects, organising fundraising events and then helping us pack our first shipping container. So Kim and I went on to become members of Rotary in 2018. I've since had the opportunity to share our story at many Rotary clubs. Uh, in 2018, Kim and I were honoured with Paul Harris Awards and I was a Quite overwhelmed when in 2019 and 20, International Zone 8 Rotary Humanitarian Award was given to me for my work with Operation Hope Australia, which then led to invitation to speak at the last district conference. So had... listeners, be aware that the Paul Harris Fellowships and Medals and Awards are some of the highest accolades that a Rotarian can receive. And it does not surprise me that Erica and her family have been uh, receiving Paul Harris Awards. Um, Erica, the money that was raised through your local Rotary Club, you mentioned it was in Toronto. For our yes. listeners' benefits, this is Toronto, New South Wales, not Toronto, yes. Canada. So um, I understood you, you raised $2 million worth of medical equipment. How did you how did you manage to find all of that and get it donated to you? Well, I simply started by phoning my local Toronto private hospital. And I spoke to the maintenance manager <coughs> and told him I was sending a 20-foot shipping container to Kurdistan. And would they have any equipment they'd like to donate? That day, my plans changed from a 20-foot shipping container to a 40-foot shipping container because they straight away offered me 17 electric hospital beds that were sitting in their car park. Wow. I had to organise to collect them the next day and get them into storage. Uh, fortunately, I had a contact in a local charity who offered to store the beds for us on their mezzanine floor and quite remarkably, at the same time, they offered us 17 hospital bed mattresses that they had been given. So that was the charity that were offering us the same number of hospital oh. bed mattresses <laughs> to match the donation of beds. Um, I then reached out to the John Hunter Hospital and became instant friends with the biotech guys there, resulting in the donation of six infant humidity cribs ECGs, nebulizers, ventilators, and patient monitors. 
Narrabri Hospital in New South Wales then donated a neonatal resuscitation unit, an anaesthetist's cabinet and a steriliser, and St Stephen's Hospital in Harvey Bay in Queensland gave us a massive hospital-grade steriliser and two small sterilisers. And then Hunter Health in Singleton, New South Wales, donated renal dialysis chairs. Um, after this first shipping container, Kim and I vowed never to attempt another shipping container, but we did start another shipping container because my friend at Toronto Private Hospital actually phoned me out of the blue, offering two anaesthetic machines with a replacement value of $125,000 each. So I could not refuse that lovely offer. So we ended up loading that container with five anaesthetic machines, an infant intensive care unit, two microscopes for theatre, two eye beds for theatre, a portable infant humidity crib, an ECG, defibrillators, patient monitors, 56 infusion pumps, a blood refrigerator, eight new otoscopes from the Rotary Donation in Kind Warehouse in Sydney. Uh, and they also allowed us space to store some equipment that we received from Westfield, sorry, Westmead Hospital until I could collect from Newcastle. So you were, you, you filled you filled containers with this donated medical equipment uh, from, yes. around, or from around from uh, around New South Wales. It, yes. it then gets shipped out. What happens at the other? Where, where does it end up precisely? What is the port that it ends up in? So we'll be rejoining this conversation with Erica Henley. But what an inspiring story it is um, of creativity, uh, perseverance, and um, simply asking for some help. And uh, magically it comes. But it does need, of course, to be uh, governed and directed by somebody with the passion of Erica. As I say, I'll be back, uh, talk to Erica shortly. Um, you're on trip. Back now with the um, story of Operation Hope Australia and the work that they're doing in Kurdistan to ease the plight of refugees. And we now find out how the containers of medical equipment which were donated in Australia made their way to Kurdistan. And uh, I spoke with Erica Henley on Zoom. Um, we shipped it through to the port of Mersin in Turkey. Mm -hmm. From there, it was loaded on, the, the whole container was loaded onto the back of a lorry in Turkey and driven the full length of the border uh, between Turkey and Syria up until it got to the border with Kurdistan and Turkey. Right. And the first shipping container we had to get through customs and that was a very, very difficult um, process, an expensive process. Um, fortunately, Kim and I had planned to go there. And um, so we spent a couple of weeks paying fees, meeting with government officials and getting the shipping container out into a refugee camp. We learnt from that process and the second shipping container we did completely uh, for the Directorate of Health in Duhuk in Kurdistan. So we, we shipped it as far as Turkey and got it on the back of the lorry and when it got to the border with Kurdistan, 
the government officials from the medical um, directorate went to the border and got it through customs and into their property where it is now sitting and it was distributed into their warehouse and then out into their hospitals. Um, so it was a much easier process and they were very, very helpful. And, and of course, receiving not only this medical equipment, but thousands and thousands of pieces of clothes, uh, women's health kits, blankets from Wrap With Love. We, we just had heaps and heaps of things. We had a lovely sewing group in Sydney who designed and hand sewed summer clothing for the children in the camps. We had other donations of clothing and after my experience in Greece, I became very particular and I was the one who sorted what we would keep and what we wouldn't and filled over 100 banana boxes with, uh, we, we, with heaps and heaps of clothes um, and, and particularly a lot of winter clothes. Um, so it was, um, it was a lot of people donating not only medical equipment but humanitarian aid. In, in the case of the medical equipment, did it not require specialist skills at the other end? I mean, for example, the use of anesthesiology machinery and so forth. Would, was, were those skills readily available in order to make good yes. use of what it was yes. that you had provided? Exactly. Can I just take us back to um, the fact that in collecting this medical equipment, we were actually saving it from landfill in Australia. Right. So there was, so there was that benefit as well. <clears throat> Before we actually packed the shipping container, we spent many hours testing and repairing the equipment and ensuring that all the batteries were charged. We even were given a battery charger that we made sure was working and um, everything was charged and ready to go. We changed the power cords so that when the equipment arrived in the containers, it was able to be simply wheeled out of the container into the warehouse and distributed to the clinic or the hospital where it was going right. to be used. Um, can I just say that Iraq and Kurdistan is not a third world country. It's because of the war there has been a lot of devastation and so particularly in areas like Mosul, the whole city was basically demolished and ISIS particularly targeted libraries, hospitals and schools apart from homes and a lot of rebuilding has not happened. There are still colleagues of one of our directors who practices out of a caravan in the streets of Mosul. Um, but in Kurdistan, in northern Iraq, where we travel, we don't travel into Iraq, we only travel into Kurdistan in northern Iraq, um, they have a very good medical system. The problem has been that with the influx of hundreds of thousands of refugees from Iraq and from Sinjar and even from Turkey, it has put the medical system under huge stress. And we felt that the equipment we were providing would be equipment they wouldn't have to purchase. And 
they do have, they do surgery and, and they have a wide range of medical services that the equipment we sent was going to be put to good health, a good use. Erica, this is an extraordinary story of um, very great generosity, um, creativity, perseverance on your part uh, in, and identifying a real human need. Uh, and if you've changed the lives, I'm sure, of many of the refugees who you've encountered, both originally in Greece and more re recently in, in Kurdistan. Um, I want to know, how do you personally find the time to do all of this work, some of which is here and some of which is overseas? And presumably, I could, presumably you have a household to run as well <laughs> in Toronto. <laughs> I, I, I'm just absolutely um, amazed. Tell us how you managed to find the time. Um, uh, in 2009, I gave up um, my career and made the decision with my husband um, to make myself available to volunteer in whatever capacity arose. So that's why uh, in 2011 I was um, coordinating several very successful uh, playgroups in Brisbane. Um, but I realised a long time ago that I cannot turn my back on situations that come my way. Um, I love having a purpose in life. I love helping out. I love solving problems. And I love being able to bring a little hope and dignity and love into the lives of some of the most traumatised people in the world. And that's what keeps me going. Well, and it's all a matter of prioritising my hours. And I have reached a stage now where um, my husband and I are at home alone. Um, my father's in, in aged care close by. My two sons are now uh, getting married this year. And so they have their own independent lives. And um, my time is more for myself and, and what I would like to do. Listeners, I'm sorry this isn't video. I'm talking to Erica Henley by Zoom, and I can actually see her. And I'm seeing the most beautiful, smiling face coming back at me through the screen. Erica, you clearly enjoy doing what you're doing, and I congratulate you on everything you've achieved. I'd love our listeners to find out more. Um, a website address, please. Sure. If they go to www operation hope australia .com. www operation hope australia we and also have a very active facebook page mm -hmm. just called operation hope dash northern iraq project so listeners two good places for you to go to now to find out more about um, erica's uh, erica's work and um, i'm quite sure she would appreciate any donations that could be made and I guess there's somewhere on the website that would enable people to do that if they want to. Yes. On the home page, there's a great big donate button. Right. And uh, on our project pages, uh, most of them have donate buttons. And 100% uh, of the donations go to the project. And because we are a registered charity and public benevolent institution, um, you're available. Donors are, are able to have a tax receipt. All right. Well, look, Erica, I wish you well. Thank you for telling us the story. You've only scratched the surface, I know. 
I'm sorry time doesn't allow me to probe a bit more deeply, but um, I'm so impressed with everything that you're doing. And I would really would urge the listeners to take a closer look at Operation Hope Australia to see what you can do to support Erica Henley and her work. Erica, thank you. Thank you so much, Ian, for this lovely opportunity. So what a great story that is. Um, uh, repeat the web address, www.operationhopeaustralia.com to find out more about the wonderful work being undertaken by Erica Henley and her team, particularly in Kurdistan in northern Iraq.